You're listening to the Offscript Podcast. My name is Mark Coffin. I'm Jesse Hitchcock. So this podcast hasn't been active lately, but we decided to bring it back because there's a really interesting election happening in PEI. So for the next month or so, we're going to be doing what we're calling the Off the Ledge series of the Offscript podcast, uh, which is really all about the election and referendum campaigns happening on Prince Edward Island this April. So Prince Edward Island is an island in the geographical sense, but politically it's also a bit of an island. It appears to be bucking some of the dominant trends that we've been seeing elsewhere in Canadian politics. There isn't a far-right party trying to take power away from a center or center-left party, as we saw in Ontario or now seeing in Alberta and probably seeing in uh, the national election coming in the fall. Instead, the Green Party, party that is in last place in most provinces, is actually leading the polls in PEI and potentially could be the next government. In addition to all of that, Islanders will get another chance to vote on whether to adopt a new voting system, facing a choice between a mixed-member proportional system or keeping the the first-past-the-post system already in place. So people that have listened to this podcast before probably are familiar with me and who I am. Uh, But for those of you who are just joining uh, and tuning in because of the PEI election, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I run an organization called Springtide and uh, Springtide is focused on uh, promoting a culture of better politics, learning about better politics and kind of dreaming up ways we can do politics differently and uh, promoting leadership development amongst people who are engaged in politics. And that's kind of been the focus of my work for the last five years. My background is a bit more varied. I'm actually from Alberta, but I had the pleasure and privilege of living in Prince Edward Island for the last almost seven years. Uh, And in that time, I was fully immersed in PEI politics and all of the amazing and sometimes contentious things it has to offer. Uh, I started an organization in PEI called Young Voters of PEI back in 2015, and our main goal was to help engage young people in PEI in electoral processes. And now I'm actually shaking things up. I'm not in PEI at the moment, but I am in Ottawa doing an internship on Parliament Hill. So still following closely and excited to get chatting about PEI Poly. And I haven't actually never lived in PEI. We did some podcasts in PEI last year. When I went there, we I was kind of warned by f- friends who have lived and uh, worked in PEI that it's not always necessarily welcoming to outsiders. But I was very, uh, I felt very welcomed by the people we, we did some work with there and the people I met there. Um, and um, my grandparents were from PEI. Wow. Oh. I did not know that. So maybe before we go further, we should just kind of disclose our personal, I guess, background with the politics that are kind of unfolding out. I guess for me, there's two things that I think are important to say. Way back, like 10 years ago when I was an undergrad student, uh, I was a member of the Green Party. And I think that's just important to say because we're going to be talking a lot about them in this podcast. And I think maybe it's fair to say that we're both big fans of proportional representation. Yeah, I would definitely say that I am a PR advocate, um, but that's the only kind of allegiance I would I would say I formerly have. Um, I was a member of the New Democratic Party in undergrad when I lived in Alberta, um, and I obviously am working on Parliament Hill right now in a member of Parliament's office, Michael Chong, um, but none of this work is affiliated with either of those things. And all of the work that I've done um, with young voters of PEI has been decidedly nonpartisan. So um, really making an effort to just engage with everybody regardless of political stripe. Mm. And I, I 
kind of articulate my own work a different way. It's decidedly postpartisan, which means I'm happy to work with anybody who's not super partisan, but anybody who is super partisan, we usually don't get along. That's a good way of putting it. We usually call ourselves multi-partisan because we did tend to work with quite a lot of partisans of all stripes, but um, yeah, definitely not partisan. So I think, I mean, the the big headline story that's been, um, I think, shared fairly broadly at this point is that um, the Green Party has been polling not only high right now, but like consistently high for the last like three or four years as they've grown their support um, on the islands and elected, well, at this point, two MLAs. From the Corporate Research Associates March 7th release, uh, they're the kind of main polling firm that does work in Atlantic Canada. They found that among decided voters in PEI, 38% would support the Greens led by Peter Bevan Baker if a provincial election were held that day, uh, compared to 37% in November. So not a huge jump, but 29% would vote for the PCs led by their new leader, Dennis King, and then 27% would back the Liberals led by current Premier Wade McLaughlin, which is down from 36% back in November. I think something that's really interesting about it you know, PEI has a history of just being red, blue, red, blue, red, blue. Um, something that listeners might not know is that PEI has the highest voter turnout in the country. Um, right. It's o- over 80%, uh, which is amazing. It's a very political place. And often party affiliations are, you know, embedded in family histories for generations back. And this is what we see coming through in PEI, where you'll have the reign of the progressive conservatives and then the reign of the liberal party. Um, So I think that what's happening now is particularly interesting because of that history. Um, Mm. You know, in 2015, that was the highest number of people that ever voted for third and fourth parties. So it was like coming up to a quarter of voters voted for third and fourth parties. Um, So obviously a lot of people, the sands of change or winds of change, um, (laughs) So is sands of change sense. a PEI expression? Yeah, or did I mean, you just it's, make it more, up? it's more PEI relevant, right? The right. Sands. Yeah. Um, but so it's really interesting. And then we started seeing all these polls coming out, you know, about the Green Party and their momentum growing. So uh, it's definitely been, you know, a few years in the making. And and I think the the thing I didn't realize until I started talking to people in PEI on PEI about PEI politics is that there's been a quite a at least a handful of sort of like total waves where it's only been one party or all but one member of the legislature has been a member of the governing party. So interesting to see what's happening now in contrast to that and everything else you just described. Yeah. First past the post has produced some very interesting outcomes on, on Prince Edward Island over the years. Hmm. And I think especially interesting because we often think of like proportional representation as a way to get small parties elected or a way for people to, you know, cast about and not feel as if they're being forced to choose uh, the person that's most likely to prevent the one they don't want to win from winning. But on PEI, it seems like because it's only been a two party province, that hasn't really been the issue. Um, Historically, the issue has been like having a party, a legislature dominated by members of one party, well beyond what majority government looks like in in most other provinces. And I think in a lot of um, districts on Prince Edward Island as well, you know, you you have a really good sense of the outcome, or at least you have in preceding uh, or previous elections. Um, You know, 
were there's three counties in PEI. There's Kings County, which is eastern PEI, and Prince County, which is the western part of the island, and then Queens County in the middle. And you know, it's pretty well known that you know western PEI goes liberal, and eastern PEI mm. is more likely to go conservative. So there's sort of these, you know, if you're living in one of those districts, whoever you vote for is not likely to uh, win if it's anybody other than who's whichever party has been elected there in the past. So it, it's mm. very, it's very deeply ingrained, which is makes it interesting when things get shaken up a little bit. So in prepping for this today, I put a bit of a timeline together just to sort of get my own head straight in terms of like all the things that have happened um, in the last four or five years. Um, and admittedly, uh, you know, I've kind of come in and out of paying attention to what's actually happening uh, with PEI politics um, and tuned in at sort of the inflection points like the one we're now at. So for folks that are like me, either haven't been paying attention or um, haven't been paying consistent attention, I thought I would just kind of run through what happened. And, and if there are uh, more subtle or nuanced moments that uh, fit in here, feel free to, to fill in the blanks, Jesse. Um, so uh, back in February 2015, uh, Wade McLaughlin, who is currently premier, was elected liberal leader. Um, there was a liberal government already at that time. So he took over as both liberal leader and as premier from Robert Giz. Um, in addition to you know, all the usual stuff that comes with a new premier, um, he made history by being the first openly gay man to become premier of a Canadian province. Um, there was a general election just a few months later uh, in May when the Liberals jumped from 20 to 22 seats in the House of Assembly, which uh, in both cases constituted a majority. Uh, soon after that election in May, the government released a white paper on, or on democratic reform, it included uh, a section on electoral reform. Um, as far as I can tell, and maybe you can, uh, you know, enlighten me, it was entirely of their own initiative. It wasn't something that got handed to them or was necessarily petitioned. Um, and the author or authors, it's not attributed to anybody, made the case for a bunch of different kinds of changes, including some kind of proportionality in the electoral system. Yeah, that that was uh, definitely just of their own volition, which I'm sure maybe they regret now. But um, <laughs> at the time, I remember feeling like it was icing on the cake. You know, uh, there was definitely this wind, you know, sands of change. I guess I'll just keep going with that. <laughs> um, but everyone was pretty excited about the election of the new leader, uh, what you mentioned, first openly gay male to become premier. Um, you know, he had previously worked at UPEI and there was that sort of uh, excitement about his presence there. And then this um, white paper came on democratic renewal and it was sort of like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening. And, Do you know who uh, well, wrote it? I can't remember who actually authored it. We could fact check that though. I I don't know, know if this, I think this, my suspicion when I was reading, I think it was just because like he's an academic and he had just become premier. I kind of got the feeling that the premier himself wrote it. I, I have I have that memory as well, but I don't know if that's uh, implanted or not. We'll have to definitely double check. Okay. If anybody listening knows, let us know. We will also try and do our own fact checking, but I remember trying to do that before and not getting very far. Um, anyway, so after that paper came out, uh, a special committee was struck uh, in the legislature. Um, they explored different options for electoral reform. And there was a plebiscite uh, that happened in the, oh, I didn't put this date in here. Was that November 2016? Yeah, it was in 2016. Okay. 
And there was a plebiscite that happened in November 2016, where Islanders got to choose between a bunch of systems um, using a ranked ballot. And the one that came out with the majority of the support after a few rounds of voting was the mixed member proportional system. Um, And the government response to that, I think, disappointed a lot of people that wanted reform uh, because the voter turnout was so low on what is traditionally a high voter turnout province, uh, that the government said that result cannot be said to constitute a clear expression of the will of Prince Edward Islanders because of that low turnout. Um, So I should have mentioned this uh, off the top, but uh, we actually, as Springtide, uh, produced a set of videos for Elections PEI unpacking all of the different voting systems and how they would work. I think something that is really exciting about that, and I I remember those videos, but, um, you know, people were asked a great task in this plebiscite. It was no easy feat to understand these five electoral systems. And uh, Springtide definitely did a great job of, of kind of putting that out there. And Elections PEI similarly did great work um, educating people in the province. But we were asked to rank five different electoral systems. You take a second to think about that, um, mm. you know, most of the most of the population of Canada or most places in the world, you know, have a base level understanding of maybe the electoral system that they have, maybe not. Um, I'm a huge electoral systems nerd and I had to wrap my head around what was being asked of me. So um, in that vein, Mm. you know, I think that the turnout was pretty good, Uh, but you know, it wasn't attached to an election. It was a standalone plebiscite and you had to rank five really nerdy math things and a good chunk of people came in and did that. So I think it was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's always a bit concerning when turnout is referenced as a reason not to do something just because the turnout is, you know, if we use that in other instances, like there's just no reason if we're going to apply that rule, we got to apply it across the board. And I don't know what turnout is like in like PEI municipal elections, but I know in Nova Scotia, it would be roughly around what turnout was in the Prince Edward Island uh, plebiscite. The two points I usually make uh, about you know that whole argument that it doesn't constitute a w- the will of Islanders um, was number one, you don't get to qualify what constitutes the will of Islanders after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of other plebiscites have you know or referendums have went into the process with these thresholds. You know they say we want this much turnout or we want um, these margins, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we didn't do that. So I don't think it's fair to qualify it after the fact. And then the second thing, uh, the same point that you just made, I mean, we're not going and kicking mayors out of office because only 30% of people turned out for the election. It's just not how we operate in democratic society. Yeah. And it was, it means almost and perfectly analogous to how the federal government justified not moving forward with electoral reform at the federal level by saying, not necessarily that we didn't get enough participation, but we didn't get consensus on what system we should move to federally when like the options were never even really presented in any way that we could say this one, not that one. And there was like multiple different public engagement processes happening. HMP had one, the minister had her own, the special committee had their own process of like, of course there was no consensus because nobody was talking to one another. Yeah. And, and even, even if there, even if there was or wasn't, I mean, sometimes leadership has to happen in the absence of consensus. Uh, that's kind of a point that I always like to reiterate. I mean, that that is why we 
elected these people is to use their judgment and to act in the interests of most or all Canadians. And I think, you know, during that federal process, I know we're going to have a whole other episode on the referendum, but yeah. during during that federal process, you know, 80, more than 80% of the testimony to that committee were in favor of proportionality. So, I mean, w- what is consensus, if not that? Yeah, it's pretty close to it. I think the, the federal liberals might think differently about consensus now after all that has happened in the last few weeks. Yeah, we have an appreciation so. for not having uh, everybody on board all of the time. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I guess the last piece of my timeline that I put together is really just like throughout this whole process, the the popularity of the Green Party increased. And that brings us to where we are today. So as someone who has only really uh, paid attention to the inflection points uh, in PEI politics in the last few years, uh, what would you say, Jesse, have been sort of like the signature policy initiatives under Wade McLaughlin's Liberals? I, I definitely want to do government justice because there have been, you know, some good things that have happened over the last um, term in government. And I mean, a big one I would say is, you know, any of the macroeconomic indicators. So if you look at um, GDP, I- employment, jobs, these types of metrics, like PEI has definitely um, improved in the last in the last four years. Um, mm. Definitely, I think that this government has worked to make PEI a good place for business. Um, that's been something they really push. And I know that there's this slogan going around all the time that the economy is on a tear. Um, on a which, tear? Is that a... On a, on a tear, is yes. Is that a PEI thing? It must be, yeah. But that's, a, that's how the government has been described um, mostly by itself, I guess. But you, you, hear, the, you hear that slogan a lot. Um, so yeah, those things are all great, obviously. Um, another thing I think is worth noting is that the province signed a multi-year agreement with the federal government on, um, climate change mitigation. So the low carbon economy fund. Hmm. So the province did a really, you know, really stepped up to the plate. Um, you know, my bias is that I got to work on that file, obviously, but, um, a lot of great programs have been delivered in a huge scale up, um, with regards to energy efficiency, Hmm. climate change. Um, and then a big one, which some people might not know, is that um, since the last election, PEI has um, now achieved, I guess, abortion access. Um, right. So up until um, the last couple of years, I think it was 2016, um, women in Prince Edward Island were not able to have abortions on island. Um, and this government uh, didn't definitely did not take the um, take the lead on that change. I don't want to give give them credit. Mm-hmm. That credit was all to, um, you know, the groups of women and allies that were working on that file. The government was faced with a lawsuit, um, ah. and so they they conceded and moved forward with providing access on island. I guess during all this time, um, we, we've kind of touched on it back and forth, but I think it's worth uh, kind of honing in on like why are the Greens popular in PEI? And so as we didn't include this in our timeline necessarily, but in that 2015 election that happened uh, in the spring of 2015, uh, that was when the leader of the Green Party of PEI was first elected to the legislature. Um, and then partway through the term, there was a second uh, Green Party candidate elected uh, as an MLA, Hannah Bell. 
And uh, maybe I'll get your take on this first. I have my own thoughts, but um, having been on the island during this time, what was it that uh, made it possible for, like, how did Peter, at, I guess, first break through um, and get elected to the legislature? So in that in that election, I mean, Peter has run multiple times in his life. Um, he like ten, I think. Yeah, ten times, um, and not just in PEI, but like, or not just in his district, but very uh, various elections. But mm-hmm. um, in that election in particular, the party the party made the decision that we see the Green Party make across Canada um, to focus all of their efforts on electing one person in one district. Right. Um, again, this is, you know, obviously a product of first past the post that we have to do this, but, you know, in Canada, we see the green party getting, you know, broad national support, but never quite being able to elect a person. So in order to elect Elizabeth May in Sandwich Gulf Islands, they had to just focus their energy there and they managed to do that, get her into the house of commons. Same sort of thing in PEI was focusing all the efforts in District 7 just to get Peter into the legislature. But yeah, I think that that was sort of the moment that changed everything because um, it gave the party credibility. And Peter is very articulate and was able to speak on issues in a way that had new authority because he was a member of the Legislative Assembly. And I think that that's when people started thinking about the Green Party in a different way. Mm-hmm. And he was in the televised debates that year as well. Yep. Yeah, he was. Had that happened before in previous elections with previous Green leaders? We'd have to fact check it, but uh, not to my knowledge. Okay. Yeah. I don't recall either. The other thing that I always think is interesting about PEI is that like the districts or the ridings are so small. I'm just looking at the results by district and you know most people are getting elected like just going from top to bottom there's like a pc gets elected with 1200 votes uh liberal gets elected elected with 1060 votes peter got elected with 2077 votes Um, yeah and he had the he had the i think the highest number of votes of any elected official in that election so interesting yeah i mean the the mechanics of uh, for anybody who's worked an election campaign it's all about how many doors can you knock on how often can you knock on doors and the mechanics of getting that done in a pei election versus like say an ontario election like even to get one mla uh, or one candidate to visit all the doors in the riding is significantly easier at PEI than anywhere else. Yeah, definitely. It, it's small, and I think it's worth noting too. I don't think we did it in the beginning um, that there are only twenty-seven districts, right? Yeah, in the legislatures with twenty-seven seats. Um, so when Mark, you mentioned that um, the Liberals have twenty-two seats, that's mm-hmm. a quite that's Huge. a pretty big majority. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that actually, because I've seen, I mean, I watch Ledge TV from time to time. And do you call it Ledge TV there? No. Okay. Nova Scotia calls it Ledge TV. What do you guys yeah. call it? I don't actually know what we call it. No. I mean, I'm in, all my head is popping up as CPAC because right. I'm in Ottawa. <laughs> yeah. PEI PAC. Um, yeah. But anyways, I've watched it a few times and I, uh, I guess I always assume when the PC leader is speaking, it's all PCs around him but we never often yeah i guess there's just a a lot more liberals than anybody else Mm -hmm. yeah the liberals spill over onto the other side of the chamber Mm -hmm. the other thing that i think is relevant to the green party's success on pei is that the ndp have only ever elected an mla to the legislature once and they haven't done that since 
the 2000 election. So when people are thinking about, I guess at this point for sure, when people are thinking about like an alternative to the liberals and the conservatives, then you know the Green Party, given what the polls are telling us, they have uh, you know a good uh, corner on sort of the third party, none of the above vote. Yeah, yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, as I said in the beginning, when I first moved to PEI, um, I had been a member of the Alberta NDP, um, and it was totally different environment um, when, when I got to PEI. And then I guess the the other party that we need to talk about is the Progressive Conservative Party. And again, uh, I've tuned in for the inflection point, so I know that they've been through quite a few leaders in the last like five or six years. Um, and their most recent one only elected late 2018, which is not a lot of time to, I would say not a great position to be going into the election with a, a brand new leader. But uh, I, I mean, I would, I would agree with you in, in like the typical, uh, you know, rules of electoral politics kind of way. But like I mentioned mm-hmm. before, PEI has this kind of ingrained base and, um, right. it, it's just that there are a lot of people that are members of the PCs and similarly members of the liberals. Um, I don't think they, they risk losing, you know, 80% of their base just because they have a new leader. Um, right. and, uh, Dennis King is pretty popular, um, from, from my understanding. Um, he, there's some interesting things about him from my perspective. Um, he is pro-choice outwardly. And he is also pro PR, so hmm. um, that's a really interesting, um, an interesting stance. So now we have sort of three, um, three out of the four party leaders who are pro proportional representation. That's interesting. I mean, the other thing is interesting about that is just that you know when you look, like we kind of mentioned in the intro, like we look at New Brunswick, there's you know a sort of populist. Uh, far right party there that's come to power. We look at Ontario, we look at Alberta, like there are a lot more far right ideas getting traction in electoral politics. And that doesn't sound like it's the case at all uh, in any portion of, I guess, the the electoral politics of PEI. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I'll say two things. One, you know, it's not unforeseen that a party takes a stance, uh, on their platform that they then don't follow through with when they get elected, when and if they get elected. Um, so, you know, obviously there's a difference between signaling your intentions and acting on them. And I've been burned before. So I like to, I like to keep that, <laughs> keep, keep that front of mind. Um, right. But I'll also say that during the last leadership race for the progressive conservative party, there, there was a candidate who was sort of espousing these, um, you know, misogynist, anti-choice kind of uh, this kind of hmm. re- this rhetoric, uh, and you know, he he didn't get no votes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I know there was a lot of calls for the party to um, distance themselves from him, to not let him run, but um, you know, they made the decision to let him run for the the leadership anyway, and he didn't win. But I know that there was a lot of talk of um, you know what can we do to make sure this person doesn't doesn't become leader? Because then I think we would right. be kind of seeing that same thing play out in PEI. Mm-hmm. We did talk, we're kind of jumping all over the place, but this is the intro episode and we're going to get more specific and more um, focused in the other episodes in this series. 
But back to electoral reform. So we've gone through that timeline. There was a white paper. There was a plebiscite. The government didn't like either the answer or the number of people that showed up. Um, now there's a referendum. How did we get from uh, a plebiscite that the government ignored to a referendum happening at the same time as the general election? So it was, there was a lot of chaos that ensued after that decision. I mean, that, that quote that you mentioned, this does not represent the will of Islanders. Uh, Islanders didn't, didn't like that. Um, they didn't really like being told what was their will and what wasn't. And I think that that mm-hmm. is a testament to sort of just Islanders as people. It's, it's this, you know, they, they know what they're doing and they care about politics and they didn't, they didn't appreciate that. So after the uh, plebiscite happened and the government made that decision. Um, there was this big campaign that got dubbed honor the vote. And it was, uh, there was rallies outside of the legislature. There was a lot of activism on the ground, on social media, in the media. And um, it put a lot of pressure on government. I think maybe more than they, they had anticipated. I think, I think that they didn't expect electoral reform to co- to become what it became uh, in, in this iteration. Mm. So after Honor the Vote went on for a while, um, government decided that we would be given this referendum opportunity um, tied to the general election, which would alleviate the um, risk of having low voter turnout again. And right. um, they, <laughs> yes, and they decided that they would ask only the question um, of, do you want to implement MMP? So it's not going to be a ranked ballot again. It's just a yes, no, um, with right. MMP as the, given that MMP was the the winner of the plebiscite. I mean, as far as questions go, it it's a pretty good question when you look at the other questions that have been asked in referendums in other parts of Canada when they've had it. It's probably the clearest question that there has been. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good question in terms of, you know, people can uh, just answer yes or no. Interestingly, as I say that, the ballot is actually no or yes. <laughs> it's do you want to change to mixed number proportional? No, yes. You mean no is first? No, no is first. On um, every ballot or did they randomize They did it? not randomize and it is just no first, which is very interesting. I have been told that uh, this has been the way that it is on other PEI uh, plebiscite as alphabetical well. order? Or? Yes, alphabetical order. Um, yeah. But I think a randomized ballot would have been a, a great a great option. But here we are. Here we are. Well, we've talked about how we got here. We've talked about sort of some of the recent history of electoral politics and electoral reform politics on PEI. Um, I think now it's a good time to maybe run through some of the potential outcomes. So I guess on the electoral reform side, uh, there's two options. There could be a majority vote in favor of mixed member proportional uh, representation or majority vote to keep uh, first past the post. And then it gets more complex when we think about what the different, um, what the makeup of the legislature could look like. So um, if news stories that are out there about the Green Party's popularity are to be believed, there could be a green majority. There could be a green majority with a yes vote to mixed member proportional, or there could be a green majority with a no vote to mixed member proportional, which I think would be interesting because it's a party that supports proportional representation, 
but they would be coming into power without with a false majority, probably, uh, that they don't like, but with no mandate to change the system. I think that would be really fascinating just to see. I know uh, from having talked to you before this, you don't think that's likely, but I think it would be a really fascinating thing to see about a party that really preaches um, and I think by, by many accounts practices a better different kind of politics. It would be fascinating to see how they would respond to a no vote. I think that there's an interesting procedural point to note here. Again, just me being a, a procedure nerd, but you you're know, not alone. <laughs> I'm definitely not alone in this in this conversation. Um, but the the point has been brought up that technically, no government or no parliament can bind a future parliament. So even if the referendum says no or yes. Technically, mm-hmm. there's no actual binding. The referendum is not actually binding on whichever party or whichever government forms um, in 2019. So I think that you know there's obviously a uh, you know electoral will, and it, it would be pretty mm-hmm. um, pretty bold to go against that. But that said, if the you know if the in the scenario you're describing, if the Green Party forms government. And there was a no vote Mm -hmm. on MMP, but just barely. I don't know. I mean, if it was if it was 50 50, just about, you know, I think the party could, you know, do something like and again, I have no idea what they would do, but they could technically do something like New Zealand did which is just change the system and then set a referendum for two elections later to turn it back. Right. Um, or change the system and not set a referendum to change it back. Totally. They, they totally could do that. And it would be equally as bold as what has been done before. Right. Um, yeah. It's just a matter of, I guess, if whoever forms government believes in, in proportional representation. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I suspect it would be difficult for them to just introduce legislation I wouldn't be surprised if they did something like, uh, you know, start a citizens assembly and then just simply actually I'm stealing this from a friend of mine who works on proportional representation in BC. We had the same conversation this afternoon. His suggestion was that what would probably happen is that they would do a citizens assembly, which would be like something like getting called for jury duty and have them decide on the best system and then simply implement that through legislation, which, as you say, a government with a majority of seats in the legislature can, like a majority vote in the legislature could just make that happen. Um, It would be really surprising, I think, to see them just implement it straight away if there were a no vote. I think that would be an unwise move, both politically and for all things democratic. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think what will be most interesting is if it's not a clear... Like, you know, same thing, like a, not a clear majority, right, yeah. it's very close, close right, um, yeah. on the ple- on the referendum, then it will be interesting to see how that's interpreted. Yeah. And I guess while we're on this, you don't think the Greens are going to get the, the, the kind of seats that the polling indicates they're likely to get? I mean, I think that it comes down to vote efficiency, as it always does. And... I think that they are definitely going to increase the number of seats that they have in the legislature. I don't know if if their popularity in the polls will be able to translate to enough districts um, because that's mm. like you mentioned earlier. That's you know having a very strong ground game uh, and a strong candidate in in you know enough districts to form government. That's a, that's a challenge for any party, um, and and they're new, right? They're the new. 
mm-hmm. or the new kids on the block. So I think um, that that's the only reason I say, like, I, I believe that the, there's their popularity in the polls is um, totally genuine. And I think a point that I wanted to make earlier um, is that both Peter, um, I mentioned when he got elected, kind of being that voice in the legislature, but I know mm-hmm. you've interviewed or you've spoken with him in the past, I think. Um, yeah. He's a very, you know, a very genuine person. Like it's easy to listen to him. He presents politics in a way that we don't often hear. And the mm. second MLA, Hannah Bell, similarly has kind of this tone of, you know, uh, doing politics differently. And I think that that's why they're polling so high is because of the presence of these two people so far, which is awesome. Um, mm. But it'll be a matter of can that translate into more candidates? And can they have the strong ground game on the on the ground in, in enough districts? And I think it, it probably will. Like my assumption is that, uh, and I don't like making political predictions, but I feel like if you look at the trend in Western world politics, I think a lot more people are simply making up their minds uh, and and voting not really based on who visited their doorstep or, um, you know, the, the ground game efforts or, um, the kind of like in your face in person stuff, uh, that most political parties have kind of built a machinery around doing, I think all that's still important. It like absolutely like is going to help those parties win votes. But I also think that like, you know, Trump didn't have a huge ground game, um, in a lot of States where he won, um, if you look at you know the NDP in Alberta, there was a lot of NDP MLAs that got elected that probably didn't expect to get elected, and, and that created some problems for the party yeah, uh, once they're in, in the legislature too. in Quebec too. So, I think it's 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 interesting to I mean the electorate is volatile, more volatile than we used to be, and I, I think it you know it could and it may not be necessarily you know if I were a member of that party and you know thinking about like what's the path what's the best path for us to form a government where we can actually do good work i don't know if a brand new suite of uh, you know 20 something not 20 something the age but like 20 something the number mlas um coming in all brand new at the same time it's going to be challenging really challenging especially for a party that's really never had experience um in government so that'll be really interesting um if it happens i think i totally uh i agree with with your characterization and there definitely could just be a wave like, you know, this, where this thing happens and just everyone votes green. Um, but I will say that PEI of, of anywhere that I've lived, PEI is the most, um, ingrained in their stripes. So I think that, you know, the ground game is, is immensely important to people on Prince Edward Island because like I said, you can get to every door and Islanders Mm -hmm. expect you to. So, right. Yeah. Um, so I guess all the other options, I think neither of us, uh, when we were coming up with this list, put forward the notion that the liberals or the PCs would form a majority based on what's presently happening. So, um, skipping through that possibility, every other possibility that we're kind of outlining here, uh, as you know, no party has uh, a majority of seats and some form of coalition or agreement to cooperate, supplying confidence agreement uh, will result, which is also brand new for PEI. As far as we can tell in sort of going back uh, to the last many decades, it's always been a majority government, progressive, conservative, or liberal. So that would be really new. 
Yeah, and I think you know, I if you if you could see the listeners could see the table, I added all of these bizarre outcomes to it with multiple exclamation marks. And um, I honestly think that there are a lot of very weird outcomes that could happen this election. And I I think that that's what's going to be most interesting to watch for. Yeah. So I guess maybe just to run through them, if the Greens, I mean, in this this matrix of possibilities, the progressive conservatives and the liberals could form some sort of alliance to keep the Green Party out of power. The Greens and the liberals could form an alliance the pcs and the Liber- or the pcs and the greens could form an alliance there could be like a three-way everybody gets nine seats kind of tie yeah i think it's kind of overwhelming it's very overwhelming and and i think that the um i you know and i guess i should have put like nine nine eight one like that's there's a situation where the ndp gets a seat as well right. um which would huh. have four parties in the legislature which would just be Uh, crazy for PEI. But I think that what will be interesting to watch is um, whether, you know, say we do end up in this situation, which I think we will, where all three of the leading parties have um, a decent chunk of seats. It's going to be interesting to see whether there is this formal kind of coalition like we've seen in other provinces, Mm -hmm. or whether it's going to be this idea of a functional coalition, which is always what I, you know... What do you mean when you say functional coalition? Um, like issues, more issues based, like legislation by legislation, parties are voting together or opposed. And perhaps, you know, sometimes the PCs and the Greens vote together to pass legislation. And sometimes the Liberals and the Greens do. But there's no, mm. there's no sort of all the time the Greens will vote with this party to pass legislation. Right. The, um, there's no supply and confidence agreement where they agree to support all confidence motions. Yeah, and I and I think given the the strength of all three parties in different ways, you know that that could be possible if if people are open to the idea. Um, and I say that obviously as a PR advocate, this is like this would be a sort of right. first past the post imposed, you know, proportional kind of system where you have to collaborate in the legislature to get things done. Um, but I, I would definitely like to see what what would happen uh, if they all get you know a good number of seats. Yeah, it will be really interesting. Do you think that there is a will amongst the PC and Liberal, I guess, party brass to do anything to stop the Greens from forming a government? I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't be the one to speak to that. I've heard that that notion thrown around for sure. Um, I also heard it in New Brunswick uh, after their election, people saying, you know, it's going to be a grand coalition. The liberals and the conservatives are going to band together to stifle new, you know, new voices. Um, I don't know. I mean, knowing what I know about PEI, um, I'm not sure that they would do that. But, you know, that said, it's the whole argument against first past the post is that, you know, it, it, it gives a party, you know, they might lose in one election, but then they'll get 100% of the power again in four or eight or 12 years. So I guess the parties would be weighing those choices. Would they rather um, right. you know, keep the new voices kind of at bay and keep things as they have been? Or uh, are we willing to work together? Yeah. And I think just because we're talking about sort of like 
what sounds like a very potentially unstable result of the election. I think it's worth underscoring that like people are going to hear this and be like, yeah, see, if we had more elections that produced no clear majority, we would always just have this like conversation about, you know, how unstable our, our we would always just be looking at a very unstable government. I think it's worth noting that in the first past the post system, like if the result is no party has a majority of seats, it's likely that, you know, especially if it's not easy to figure out who's going to cooperate with whom, it's likely that Islanders will have another election in like anywhere between like six months and two years, three years, maybe at the most. Um, But in proportional systems, that doesn't happen because everybody knows that if they go to the polls, no one's coming back with a majority of votes because you don't have the benefit of only needing to get 40% of the vote in order to get 60% of the seats or the 75 or 80% that it would be in PEI. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at the government of Canada, how many elections there were in short order in the early 2000s, um, even though we have first passed the post, just as you mentioned, it was minority governments and they were unstable and we went to the polls again. So um, I definitely think that that yeah it's not a unique situation or even a common situation in proportional systems and it's just as likely to happen in um first past the post as well so we've talked a lot about what happened over the last few years um and where we're at now what the potential outcomes for the election might be uh we haven't talked about what's happening on the campaign trail and i think this may be um, the Achilles heel of this podcast, um, partly because like I don't think elections are that interesting in terms of like listening to what leaders are saying, and uh, you know obviously the the platforms are are something that you know are worth paying attention to and figuring out what, what people are promising. But I think the the interesting parts of the election, I mean that that's all not necessarily news. Like the interesting parts are like the potential outcomes, what could result from the electoral reform referendum, um, and just really understanding kind of the what's underneath the platforms and what's underneath all the announcements. I think that's my bias in, in, in sort of, I'm sure we'll talk about interesting things that have happened on the campaign trail, but just like watching the news, reading the news in the last week and a bit hasn't been that much exciting in terms of developments. I guess the one thing to note, the Green Party did do something unique that you don't often see, which is just release their whole platform at once in the first week of the campaign, uh, which I think is a an interesting strategy that we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, if things come up that are interesting, we'll definitely, you know, we can definitely talk about it. I know that there's going to be a, um, the PEI Coalition for Women in Government is hosting a uh, leaders forum on women's issues, uh, which there's a little bit of inherent irony because they're <laughs> all men. Um, but nonetheless, I'm happy to see it happening. It'll it'll be interesting to to watch that forum, uh, given the newness of um, you know the reproductive rights that have been so graciously bestowed on on island women. So uh, I think a lot of people are nervous to see uh, if any of the parties, I guess, with the progressive conservatives in particular, if if there's a risk that those rights will be revoked. So I think hmm. um, I, I think people want the reassurance that that conversation is is uh, dead. So right. we'll see if that comes through. I also think it's interesting because I've been a part of so many conversations with different groups I've been involved with where like the idea comes up that like, oh, we should just have a leaders debate on this issue, invite the you know all the candidates for premier to come and talk about this. And it never happens. Like that does not happen. I, I don't think it would happen anywhere else, but in PEI, I think it's fascinating exactly. and like great, great, yeah. like 
good on the Coalition for Women in Government in getting to a position where they can uh, secure attendance from all of the leaders because that's just so rare. Like it's rare that a debate happens in any other forum than a television studio. Yeah, I mean, we for with young voters in the 2015 election, we had all four party leaders at the time come to a you know hang out with young people mixer at Back Alley Music, the local record store. So wow. um, that is definitely one of the amazing things about Prince Edward Island and about politics on Prince Edward Island is that the amount of access you have to politicians um, and to political dialogue is is high. So good for good and bad. Well, I'm sure we will have much to discuss next week where our topic will be all about the referendum. And we'll definitely have to try to keep that one short because we're we're both such nerds on this topic. Yeah, we are definitely. All right. That is the first episode of the Off the Ledge series of the Offscript podcast. I've long maintained that PEI politics are the most interesting politics that I've, I've followed in my life. So I'm really glad to have you all here tuned in and listening and we'll share more next week. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts on or just go to springtide.ngo to listen on the web. New episodes will be posted every Thursday. If you want to get in touch with us about anything you heard on the show, you can email us at offscript at springtide.ngo. And you can follow Springtide on Twitter at Springtide Co. Springtide Co. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark Coffin. You can follow Jesse on Twitter at Jesse Hitchcock. See you next week.